COVID cases nearing an all-time low are starting to plateau in the United States, suggesting that they may start to rise sometime soon. Moderna and Pfizer applied for emergency use authorization for a second COVID vaccine booster, but if it were approved, the U.S. government wouldn't have the funding to provide it. Nearly 10 million Ukrainians have left their homes, and 3 million have left their country, creating one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. I've never menstruated. I don't know what the experience is like. And honestly, because of the stigma around menstruation, it's not really a topic of conversation I've had with many people. I do remember one time, though, when I was sent to a local pharmacy to pick up period products for a family member. And when one of the clerks asked if they could help, I mentioned what I was looking for. They gave me a look I can only describe as some parts pity and some parts disgust. Here I was, a grown man, a doctor, who understands full well that menstruation is a perfectly normal, perfectly healthy part of adult physiology for nearly 50% of the whole world, and I felt shame for helping my family member with a necessary purchase. And now that I say that, I feel ashamed about my shame. It's completely messed up how society has stigmatized a regular part of our human physiology. It keeps us from having honest conversations about what people need as they go through that experience. And that, well, that keeps us from providing people with those needs. And that's not all. The majority of states charge a luxury tax on period products. But there is nothing luxurious about menstruating with dignity. In our country, our failure to talk about, let alone provide for access to period products, means that millions of people who need them go without them. Globally, 500 million people, that's half a billion people, go without period products that they need to menstruate with dignity. In the U.S., nearly 17 million people who menstruate live in poverty, meaning that paying for their products may cost them access to other needs in their lives. And nearly 15% of them have gone without the products they need in that last year, 10% in the last month. What do they do? They keep tampons in for longer than they're supposed to be, which leads to risk for deadly illness like toxic shock syndrome. Others resort to using things like socks or paper towels that are uncomfortable, dangerous, and defective. This week, I wanted to understand more about period poverty, its impact on poor folks across our country, and how leaders and activists are taking it on. I turned to Lynette Medley, founder and CEO of No More Secrets, which operates The Spot, a period hub in Philly. They offer free period products to folks in that community. We talk about period poverty, The Spot, and what policymakers need to do to end period poverty. After this break. Okay, can you introduce yourself for the tape? Lynette Medley, founder and CEO of No More Secrets, Mind, Body, Spirit, Incorporated. Lynette Medley's work is a calling. After witnessing firsthand the consequences of period poverty and the links people in her community were going to access period products, she decided to do something about it. Her organization, No More Secrets, offers free period products to thousands of people across her community. Well, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Lynette. I, I um, you know, came across your work and was just uh, immediately struck by both how uh, important it is and how urgent it is. You run SPOT, which you say is the nation's first menstrual hub. Can you tell us what that means? The SPOT stands for Safety Programming for Optimal Transformation. So it is the nation's first menstrual hub and uterine wellness center um, drop-in place for our communities. And before Spot, before you actually had a central uh, brick-and-mortar space, 
you all were making deliveries of menstrual products door to door out of the back of your car. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that and what sparked your uh, recognition of the need and um, your your quest to address that? Oh, definitely, definitely. So we've been doing this work for the last six, seven years, and we started it early on when we were having conversations with the community, really about the Me Too movement at the time, about bodily autonomy, making safe choices and safe relationship choices. And in having those conversations, it was revealed to us from some of the young people that they engage in survival sex, high-risk behaviors, and just um, stealing and everything else just to be able to get a pad or a tampon. Um, and in having those conversations, we quickly said, well, we have to do something. And I think the biggest thing that we learned was that it wasn't covered by Medicaid or Medicare. So these young people were left to their own devices. So when we started reaching out for resources for them, we realized there weren't any resources that addressed this. So we started collecting products and then delivering to the communities. Uh, so we were actually doing around 80, 85 deliveries a week before we opened up the spot. Wow. And how has that changed the lives of recipients? It has changed their lives tremendously. It has allowed many of them to live in dignity. It's allowed many of them to not get criminalized. Just think, if I'm stealing to survive to get menstrual products, then again, I can enter into the penal system. If I have to stay in an abusive relationship, then again, I'm not living in dignity. Or if I have to basically sell my body or perform sexual acts, again, I'm, I'm you know, being exposed to high risk, you know, behaviors and and just being a detriment to myself and my community and my body. A lot of people, of course, um, who uh, by virtue of their anatomy uh, or by virtue of their privilege take access to menstrual products as a given. Um, how widespread is uh, period poverty, uh, lack of access to, 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 to menstrual products? You know, I've seen some studies and they'll say one in four and one in five, but I like to equate it anymore, a little bit, you know, more. If you know how many people are in poverty in the United States, just say about 50% of that population are dealing with period poverty. It's the same population. You know, if you can't afford housing or food or all of those other necessities, you cannot af afford menstrual products because they're not covered by anything. And then I would add the number a little higher, the percentage, because even though you have funding for food products, you know, you have, you know, food stamps and things like that, they do not have anything that covers menstrual products. Mm. And so, you know, we've we've come through the most acute phase of a, let's hope, once in a lifetime experience through this pandemic. And it fundamentally changed people's livelihoods. How did the pandemic uh, complicate the experience of period poverty for folks? And how did it shape your work? It changed my world and it debilitated our communities. So one of the biggest things is that, you know, period poverty is the inability to access menstrual products, in addition to waste management services, running waters and operable toilets. This pandemic shut down every resource that our communities depended on. I think one thing that people always need to really realize is their positionality. Pandemic hit, many of us, you know, were shut in our houses doing TikTok videos because everything we needed was inside of our home. When most of our marginalized and vulnerable community, all of the resources are outside of their homes and everything shut down. 
so they didn't have schools, community centers, churches, you know, all of these things that they would normally need. So we went by doing from 85 deliveries to 300 plus deliveries a week. And in addition to menstrual products, we had to drive people around for places to be able to use water, to use the bathroom, to clean up, because again, they were dependent on all of these systems outside of their homes. Wow. And independent of, of your services, um, directly uh, addressing the in access that people had, um, you talked a bit about some of the the the, the really dire circumstances that people um, were forced into to be able to to, to access uh, menstrual products. Um, you know, what do folks end up doing if they just can't get access to menstrual products? W- what kind of solutions are there, if any? Well, I think one of the main things is they use unhealthy methodologies, like anything else. They will use socks. They will use gloves, they will use rags, anything that they can use, which causes other infections and diseases. They will use used pads that they find in the trash, used tampons, you know, again, it just puts them at a high level of risk, Mm. you know, that that can really harm their bodies. And, you know, sometimes we, you know, obviously, if you just heard that, um, the circumstances of that, you know, make you shudder. But we also don't appreciate that those infections are deadly. Toxic shock syndrome um, is uh, occurs because people, uh, in effect, don't have the menstrual products that they need. They overuse them uh, for too long. Um, and there are uh, bacteria that release toxins into the body that can cause uh, severe shock and, and, and actually kill folks. Um, and so this really is a, a life and death issue. You all opened your hub. Um, tell me a little bit about what you do. How does the hub operate and um, who, who do you see coming in and what's their experience of the hub? I'm so glad you asked that question. So the hub was opened up to create a safe space, a non-judgmental space to be give, to give people the products that they need. Of course, the menstrual products and including, you know, the, the waste management running water. But we see everybody. I think that's what people need to realize. Mm. Even if we have, we have some people in deep poverty, we have some people who, you know, their economic situation has changed from not being able to work overtime. They have to stay at home with your children to people whose jobs just don't meet um, the necessities after paying for rent, paying for utilities. So we have people at all socioeconomic statuses because there is nothing out there to bridge the gap for menstrual products. And I think people need to realize there's there's nothing out there in the world to say, hey, if you don't have enough, here you go. Here's something for menstrual products. So the reactions we get first are, I can't believe you created this. And mm-hmm. when they walk in and see the fluidity of products and the, you know, the options and the choices, they're just overwhelmed and they're just crying. We have people who are in tears because they're, you know, and it's not, and I, and I want to reiterate, it's not just people living in poverty. We have people who are middle class and they're like, do you know, for the last three cycles, my daughter and I had to use paper towels? Because mm-hmm. it was easier to get paper towels than it was to get menstrual products. So this is the reality that people do. And they suffer in silence. We haven't created a space to talk about this. And then again, because it's the, the, the period is so stigmatized and it's such a taboo subject, who are you going to say, hey, I don't have access to products because we don't really create spaces to really tell the truths about that? Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. How, how is the taboo nature, the stigma uh, about menstruation, how does that shape uh, the the global problem that we have? I mean, clearly you're solving uh, in part the problem in one community, but this is a this is an issue that you know if it exists in Philly where you are, it exists everywhere. 
Um, but we're not having a conversation about that. We don't talk about it. And in some respects, it's because we just don't talk about menstruation. Um, how has the stigma shaped the circumstances? And then beyond that, what do we need to do to take on the stigma? I think the, that we just need to be honest that we live in a misogynistic, patriarchal society that doesn't always uh, bring conversations around women's health, women's bodies, or people who menstruate or people with uteruses into the conversation. It's really like not something that's really talked about. So we have, you know, as a, as a society, as a culture, as a nation, never embraced the menstrual cycle as a normal, natural part of life. And I think because of that, it's never been integrated in conversations of wellness and, and health and well-being. So because we don't even talk about it with the people who actually have it or uplift them and say, okay, this is something we need to address. We don't talk about it with non-menstruating individuals. So it's really just something that's left off the table. And the, the horrendous part is, again, when you're talking about luxury, you know, in still 30 some 30 states, they still tax on tax menstrual products as a luxury item. So I think the way to address it is to, again, I always reiterate the menstrual hygiene products are one part of it, but we need to look at menstrual health as a system of care. We need to start addressing it as a health issue, as something that we need to make sure we care for and make sure that our populations have access to these so we don't so they don't engage in high-risk behaviors and they don't end up getting these other health issues and health disparities related to lack of menstrual health and hygiene. You know, it's a crazy thing that you bring up that point that um, in 30-some 30, 30 states, these products are taxed as a quote-unquote luxury item. Now, I've, I've never menstruated, but um, from what I understand, there's nothing luxurious about it. And um, this is a need, not a want, not an ask. This is a requirement, um, as, as you and your work uh, are a testament to. So in this respect, government isn't just not offering solutions. It's, in fact, part of the problem. Um, can you talk about... Uh, some of the policy circumstances that have led to the situation that we're in and what you'd like to see change when it comes to uh, thinking about about period poverty and, and how we take it on? Definitely. Well, overall, whenever you talk about vulnerable populations, I always say those are populations who are oppressed intentionally by systems of power. Mm. You know, I hate to put it on them. But one of the things that was ironic was that during the height of the pandemic, government officials came together and added menstrual products to flexible spending. Hmm. And it was ironic. I remember somebody was interviewing me about it with other organizations and other organizations would talk about how great it was. And I, I remember getting on the mic and saying, this is really disgusting and discriminatory. Like, how are you adding it to flexible spending during a time when 85 plus of bleeding bodies, black, brown, marginalized, disabled, are losing jobs and you never added it to Medicaid, Medicare, WIC, or SNAP? You know, mm. so I think that's what it is. So, of course, if you're not and I always say if you're not in this space or if you're not understanding the perspective of people who are in need, you wouldn't even thought about it. But what they made was a decision that was helping their friends, you know, people who were all of a sudden struggling with something that they had never struggled with before. And, OK, we're going to add it to this. Half our communities don't know what flexible spending is, let alone have a flexible spending account. But how can you consciously sit at the table and add it to flexible spending and not add it to Medicaid or Medicare. Like, I, and to me, I'm still wondering how did you make that decision? You know, so you understand that it's a need, but is it a need only for the haves and not the have nots? And, and I'm struggling still with that decision that they made and still not considering it a medical device for the, mo for the populations that need it most. Yeah. And just for context for our listeners, uh, flexible spending accounts, FSAs, are 
in effect, tax harbored accounts that uh, people can uh, use. And it's only really for employed folks. And it tends to be for employed folks who make above a certain amount of money. And so um, what Lynette is, is pointing to is the fact that when uh, government includes it as something that can be paid for out of an FSA, a flexible spending account, it's basically saying that this is only a need for people who have high enough income to have a flexible spending account, rather than putting it obviously uh, into the, the set of uh, goods and benefits that are supported by um, programs that are intended uh, to support lower income folks, things like WIC or uh, or, or Medicaid or SNAP, and um, you know the 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 point that you're making here, right, is is one about the way that government tends to disaggregate people by socioeconomic position. And you know, one area that I've um, thought and spent a lot of time on is uh, on universal approaches to healthcare, whether that's Medicare for all or other approaches. And you know what that does is that it creates programs that are equally engaged in, no matter who you are, what your income is, uh, or what your circumstances are. And you know there is a, a quote from a social scientist that says that um, programs for the poor are recipes for poor programs. Uh, because they don't have buy-in from everybody. And the point that you're making here illustrates that um, really, unfortunately, perfectly. Uh, have there been communities that have uh, have moved forward policies that you really think would uh, address this issue? No, not yet. I mean, I think many of the policies that are being presented or or the, the legislation, it's affecting one part of the community. So there are a lot of menstrual equity bills out there and they're very heavy bills. And they're talking about, you know, put them in schools, adding them to prisons, workforces, if there's over hundred people. But I do not see a bill that is intentionally targeted towards the populations who need it most. Because when you have a bill that's introduced as very heavy with all of this information, it's almost like it's a, a, you know, a privilege, you know, like, oh, well, we just need to add this in addition to whatever, not understand it's a necessity. So even if you put it in all the schools and all of the buildings and all of the churches, just like the pandemic showed, if they'll shut down and they're not open, what happens mm. to our communities? They need to have ongoing access to menstrual products. That's the bottom line. WIC, SNAP, Medicaid, Medicare, even put it in the schools. If free lunches are offered, you should get free menstrual products. So I do not see a bill that is basically going to encompass what we need for our communities. And my fear is that if an initial period equity bill or menstrual equity bill gets passed, where they'll say, we'll put it in the schools and all of the, 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 um, the public buildings, my problem is people say, okay, we're done. We've solved period poverty. And that mm. will not impact our communities at all. So that's why I'm always one to say, hey, you need to bring the people who are really, you know, even experience period poverty themselves or really are dealing directly with individuals and communities are experiencing period poverty. Mm. I, re I really appreciate that that perspective. And, uh, you know, the, the, there is sometimes in government an approach where um the people who are designing legislation design legislation around a limited perspective on the problem rather than design their legislation and or their administration around uh, the the lived experience of the people who um, experience that problem firsthand. And I, I think that's a really important approach. Obviously, your solution is one um, that you've built out in, in Philly. Do you have plans to scale uh, at all across other 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 communities? 
Yes. Well, actually, even though we're located in Philly, um, our corporate office, like our office, No More Secrets office is in Delaware. So we do work in Delaware. We actually, so we service the whole tri-state area and that's Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware. We even go out to Maryland, but we also ship nationwide. So we will ship anywhere. Um, and currently we are, we have one historically black college university, HBCU Satellite Hub at Lincoln University. And we're also working with North Carolina Central University and possibly Cheney University to um, also open up satellite hubs on their campuses. That's amazing. And where can people go to support your work? They can go right to our website, nomoresecretsmbs.org. And everything is on there from volunteering to donating to ag- advocating. Uh, you know, I think people really need to know that we are not funded by the city and government, uh, that we are really supported by our communities, private donors, and just people who want to feed into the work that we do. Well, uh, Lynette, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to educate us and uh, share your experience and your leadership with us. Um, that is uh, Lynette Medley and um, her work. We're going to include it in the show notes. Uh, I hope that you'll check them out and, um, and you'll go to the website and support. Lynette, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. COVID cases are near an all-time low in the U.S., but they're starting to plateau and could begin climbing soon. The Omicron subvariant BA2 is enriching itself, now accounting for more than half of all cases. As you know, cases have been going up in Western Europe for some time. In fact, their BA2 mini-surge is now starting to stabilize. What happens here? That remains unclear. There are two things, though, I'm worried about, and I want you to pay attention to. First, I worry that we're not going to put our masks back on fast enough. The new CDC guidance makes recommendations based on two other metrics along with cases, hospitalizations, and the proportion of hospital beds occupied by COVID patients. The problem here is that COVID surges can be explosive, particularly early, but this guidance doesn't trigger mask wearing until at least after case rates have led to hospitalizations. So I worry that people won't put their masks back on until COVID has had time to spread substantially. The other worry I have is about funding for tests, treatments, and vaccinations. Right now, Congress is still dawdling on the $15 billion down from the original $30 billion the administration asked for. If cases do surge, I worry that we'll be right back to where we were with the original Omicron. Too few tests, too little treatment to go around. In the richest, most powerful country in the world. To that end, both Pfizer and Moderna have applied for emergency use authorization for fourth doses. Moderna for everyone and Pfizer for people over 65. Given new findings about waning immunity within a month of a booster, if cases surge, we may need to be boosted again. And right now... Well, the federal government can't even afford another booster. Congress, if you're listening, can we get a move on? Finally, to the story that so many of us have been watching for the last month. The western borders of Ukraine have become a sieve, a revolving door of despair. More than three million people have fled Ukraine. It's nearly 7% of the country's entire population. 10 million people have been displaced by Vladimir Putin's illegal, immoral war and more than 3 million have left the country completely. While Ukrainian refugees have been welcomed with open arms, for now, it raises two questions. First, how long will the world be open to resettling Ukrainian refugees? Given past history, people tend to open their arms early on. But sometimes that hospitality wanes. And second, what about all the other refugees from places like Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan who need and have needed our support? Forced displacement destroys lives. It destabilizes everything people can build on. Refugees go without the food, the health care, the education they deserve. I hope that our listeners are doing what they can to support refugees. One great place to start is Doctors Without Borders. 
please consider going to their website and making a contribution today. That's it for now. On your way out, if you want to do me a favor, can you please rate and review our show? It does really help. Also, if you love the show and want to rep us, I hope you'll drop by the Crooked Store for some America Dissected merch. We've got our logo mugs, our t-shirts, our Signs Always Wins t-shirts, sweatshirts, and dad caps, and our safe and effective tees, which are on sale for $10 off while supplies last. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Our associate producer is Olivia Martinez. Veronica Simonetti mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Ari Schwartz. Our theme song is by Taka Sazawa and Alex Uguera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer, Sandy Gerard, Michael Martinez, and me, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. 